Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we re-examine Hollywood's red-headed stepchildren. As a red-headed stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review Jim Jarmusch's Down By Law. It's a million in a drop-dead suit. Touch your pink on a downtown train. Two dollar pistol, but the gun won't shoot. And this is probably going to be the hardest actual episode to record, not because the movie was bad per se, but because so little happened. Yeah, I I was taking my notes and I thought, what are we going to talk about? Because there's not, there's not a lot to talk about. It wasn't like Blood for Dracula where it was bad. It wasn't like Teeth where it was good. It was just kind of boring. Yeah. Am I bad for thinking that? No, because I, I think that's the right word for it. You know, I you you watched it before me and, you know, you texted me your your two sentence, you know, summaration of thoughts. And I mean, I, I believed you, but just then I watched it myself and like th- th- the movie isn't bad. There's a lot that's really well done, but this is without a doubt the 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 least things happen in this movie than anything we've watched and even yeah. even the things that do happen are like skipped and cut around and it's 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 very art house it's very very different yeah so for those of you who missed the movie down by law is the tale of three men who are in varying degrees of innocence versus guilt and they escape from prison discover that prison is other people yeah and that's kind of it it's and and but bizarrely like like you you hear that synopsis and and we said something very similar at the end of the last episode and you're like oh oh okay this is a prison escape movie but it's not but then but then the yes the pacing in this movie is wonky and big spoiler alert the prison escape is all of maybe five minutes of the movie and isn't even shown. Right. So. So. <laughs> I've I've never I'd never heard of this movie, but I'd heard of Jim Jarmusch. He's he's one of those David Cronenberg's and John Waters. Not not in that he does super weird stuff, but that. He does movies in a way that no one else can do. Um, I've seen two other of his movies, uh, Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, which is on the list, and is actually a lot better, and, and stuff actually happens. Yeah. And Only Lovers Left Alive, which is a vampire romance starring Tom Hiddleston and Tilda Swinton. What? You Clearly say we that. Be watching that movie. You say that. And yeah, no, well, not good. I mean, it's it, it's like Down by Law. It's good. It's it's dripping in the style it that Jarmusch has has dunked it in, like it's caramel with a candy apple or something. But surprisingly slow for a vampire romance starring Tom Hiddleston and Tilda Swinton. So all that to say, like what we experienced and anybody who else who watched it, what you experienced, that is very Jarmusch. Mm-hmm. And, and and the man's working today. He He's actually at time of recording. His next movie comes out this weekend and it is a zombie comedy with Bill Murray and Adam driver. And I, I, I really want to see it. It really looks good. Tom Waits is in that. He plays a hobo, but like, I want to go. Well, well, we'll meet up halfway somewhere in Georgia and, and we'll Savannah's equally halfway. There you go. We'll meet up in Savannah and watch. I, I think it's called only the dead something. I got it right here. Hold on. Might as well get the movie, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the dead don't die oh sure uh, but but down by law <laughs> but down by law i, I feel like there were you liked it well i uh, there were parts of it i really liked and there wasn't that is different than liking it <laughs> fair true indeed 
<laughs> there were parts of it you were saying. There were parts of it I really liked, and there really wasn't any part that I I disliked or like had a problem with, but there was just so much that is like okay, this is slow and this is boring and any artistic merit is really getting just muddled up in the meanderingness of this movie. It, it felt like a play to me. I read that note and thought it should have been a play. Right? It makes so much more sense as a play. The pacing makes more sense. What they do and do not show makes more sense as a play. The dialogue versus monologue ratio makes more sense because this movie has a lot of monologuing yeah yeah okay so let's let's do this what did you like about this movie andy um i mean my my favorite thing about this movie is the opening song and yes it's you know i played it when i announced the title a couple minutes ago it is it's a it's a tom waits i think cover but it's just groovy and funky and awesome and i've been muttering i've been like singing it under, under my breath for the past week it, it's very catchy and great and i love the the scenic car driving through new orleans kind of presentation i think it's it's cool like that's the kind of style i'm here for and mm-hmm. i wound up just very sad that like it it went away after after the song was over yeah i liked bob i liked tom waits you know the 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 acting is fine the the acting the acting is fantastic yeah absolutely young tom waits is beautiful (laughs) yes yes he is oh my goodness is he ever (laughs) attractive for a man that grew up to look like a human ashtray especially uh in his first outfit with the suspenders and and the the pork pie hat and Oh yeah. The 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 wingtipped silver lace shoes. Yeah, it, it I I wasn't I wasn't in spader territory. I wasn't I I wasn't ready for him to be like <laughs> bad at to me. But I I was here for for young Tom Waits, absolutely. Yes, he's a very beautiful man. Uh let's see what else did I love about this movie? I loved I actually really enjoyed the black and white. What did you think? It, it was interesting because this came out in 1984. So like, yeah. And this wasn't his first movie. So you can't make the excuse that like he couldn't afford color film stock or something. It was, it was a choice. It was a hundred percent, a conscious decision to make this movie black and white. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure what that was. I wanted, so in the same world where this gets released in art house theaters, we both spent some time in Orlando. Let's travel to a world where this gets shown at the Enzian. The thing that I settled on in my head was it's black and white because the thinking of the movie of guilty versus innocent is black and white. Hmm. The characters approach themselves all as I'm an innocent man. I just got set up. And so they're able to persuade their own thinking to thinking, Oh, I'm innocent. And they're able to see their own situations with a shade of nuance, but the way that, the movie shows us is no they're very guilty i would buy that i'm i'm interested to hear how you think tom waits zach was guilty because the other two yeah absolutely you know bob killed a guy and jack's a pimp he's maybe the nicest pimp ever but he's he's, oh the sweetest yeah right yeah um, but definitely a pimp. But Zach, I was never sold on. So I would love to hear your 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 thoughts on that. So Zach, when he is approached by random mob boss person to do a job, this is not the first time he's done that job. He knows he's not supposed to because he says, nah, man, nah, man, I'm off that. Or he, he somehow implies that he doesn't want to take any illegal jobs. He wants to stay straight. Okay. But he is eventually persuaded to, okay, I'll do it for this much. I will do it for this much up front. Sure. A ludicrous amount of money. 
a ludicrous amount of money. So he knows that he's doing what he shouldn't be doing. He just doesn't know how bad it is. He doesn't know how guilty he's. So he's still set up, but I wouldn't argue that he's in any way innocent. Just like Jack is set up, but he's a pimp going to see about a girl. So he's in no way innocent either. Sure. Sure. That one, that one was so much clearer to me. And, you know, in, in Martin Scorsese's down by law, Jack is our main character and it becomes this whole gangster revenge story to go kill the, the other pimp who set him up. And I kind of want to, I'd, I'd watch that movie. I'm sure it exists in some capacity. <laughs> but. Yeah. Yeah. That's a movie that would have fixed pacing and have something going on for it. Is a sad and beautiful world. Yeah, it's a sad and beautiful world. Yeah, I, so so that's, I, I buy that. I, I, I buy that for being the black and white reasoning. You know, you, you and I were talking a little bit about it in the notes and, and you had said your other hypothesis was that it had something to do with race, which yeah. I, I think would be interesting, but that one is also harder to really get the point across i guess because race doesn't wind up mattering in this movie at all right it matters in the first or it was presented like it would matter right in the first 10 minutes because the character of jack at first i thought it was an interracial relationship and then i re- i came to realize that it was a, a, uh, jack being a, a pimp of a black woman right and jack is in this relationship and I thought, okay, so it's this really interesting conversation about race relations in America. And right after they have this conversation, we have a shot where a black man is pulled over by the police and he's got his hands on a cop car or I'm sorry, not right after they have a conversation right after the first time where the black woman is shown. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that character is unnamed in the movie, but in the credits is named as, for me do 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 hey betty but but in the mo- in the movie she's not named no one ever says her name sure so anyway all this to say i thought it might be about race re- race relations and it's not well i agree the only thing that i thought was ever going to support that was when we first when we finally do get to the the orlean county prison or whatever like there's that long panning shot through the main prison hallway and it is a predominantly black population of prisoners, which is, mm. you know, still relevant today as a point of commentary, but it never, it never matters if, if Jack or Zach had been African American, then I think we're, we're cooking with something for for that paper but as it was like this didn't even need to be set in new orleans it really didn't i i appreciated the scene set in the swamp because it had this very fun aesthetic sure but no it didn't need to be set in new orleans the only thing that that gave it was a strong type of setting where guilt and innocence kind of hold hand in hand and go play. Sure, sure. But other than that, I was really uncompelled by this movie. And it's so funny because I'm on IMDb and I'm reading the reviews and everyone is rating it eight stars, nine stars. Another great movie by Jim Jarmusch. Did we watch the same movie? (laughs) And, and yeah, like, I mean, obviously we're going to get to it, but this, this, this has its own cult. This is, this is yet another one where like, I don't get it. I'm not afraid to say I don't get it. I've watched other Jarmusch movies and, and had mixed results. I very much like ghost dog and I'm very lukewarm on only lovers left alive. So like, I, I think the only thing you can like, agree on whether you like the movie or not is it's it's definitely this guy's style <laughs> like hmm. so what about it establishes it as jarmusch's style so he is his movies are very 
slow, very slow, very kind of that artsy quiet. Like again, to bring it back, it it felt like a play. Um, Mm. Ghost dog. We're going to get to it at some point, but just the briefest synopsis, Forrest Whitaker plays a mafia hitman who also happens to be homeless and has dedicated his life to the way of the samurai. Like, like unironically, uncomedically. I don't remember the specific mental thought philosophy off the top of my head. I think it's, I'm, I'm not even going to try, but there's, there's a book there. There's like an, an art of war esque book about like the samurai code. And this dude reads it every day and tries to live his life by it. And so he, he's, he's a, it, it's Forrest Whitaker as a samurai mafia hitman. And again, it's like, Whoa, what? That's like that premise enough was what got me to see it the first time, but you watch it and it has action sequences. And, and I do think it's paced a bit better, but it is very slow. It is very monologue. It is very slow burn, you know, and, and to bring it back to down by law, you know, we watched green room a couple movies ago and I, I raved about how much I love that. It's, low buy-in and and hyper realistic this was too realistic for me this was this Mm. was too much like real life yeah because there are characters that you see once and they're the catalyst for an important moment but then you never see them again because there are things that are presented that aren't tied up right Because real life doesn't get tied up. For example, we have two characters at the very beginning of the movie. All the women in this movie serve as a means to an end. Mm -hmm. All of the the women are catalysts for action. So each of the men who go to prison and break out have a pairing woman. So Zach starts the movie with a girlfriend. And his girlfriend, Ellen, um, the actress is Ellen Barkin has this amazing scene where she's throwing Zach's stuff out of the apartment and she's saying he'll never amount to anything. And it's a fantastic scene and it only serves to get Zach out on the street so that his catalyst can start. And then, um, as we said, the actress's name, BD, BD. What is her name? That's a great question. (laughs) I'm looking at a Billy Neal. Okay. Billy Neal um, is then she has this amazing monologue at the beginning of her and Jack's relationship and it doesn't go anywhere. And then at the very end of the movie, there is Bob's significant lady. Nicoletta. Nicoletta, whose actual name is Nicoletta Braccia. Or Brashi? Brashi. Yep. Nicoletta Brashi, who, fun fact, is and was at time of filming Roberto Benini's wife. Oh. And she just exists to kind of solve the plot of, okay, men who have escaped from jail, I take you in, I give you new clothes, I marry one of you, and the other two of you I send on your way. The women serve to start the plot and tie up the plot, but they're really just devices. Absolutely. And, and Nicolette, I think is the worst offender. Maybe it's because she happens at the ending. Cause you, you bring up a good point. The other two women are equally objectified, but like in that they are literal plot objects. So yeah. play on words there, but like, like Nicoletta coming in as the magical Italian immigrant and the appearance of a, you know, empty restaurant that that's the part where the movie really lost me. And mm-hmm. again, if it's, if it's a play, maybe it doesn't lose me. Cause I'm, I'm just used to that sort of narrative convenience happening in a play but like they break out of prison. They spend two nights wandering around in the swamp, you know, eating rabbits and in a boat that's sinking and having just a miserable ass time and then find a perfectly convenient for all of their circumstances way out. And it's just like, uh, 
for for a movie that is so like this could have happened that's the one part and and i don't know maybe you know life is stranger than fiction and that's kind of part of it and and these narrative conveniences are allowed to happen in real life but uh And you know, I say that, but I really liked the very ending, the 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 goodbye between Jack and Zach, who you know have been kind of set up to be two sides of the same coin. Yes. Um, they're they're when they're standing at the crossroads and deciding, I'm going to walk east, you're going to walk west. That scene was very affecting to me, surprisingly affecting. And yes. it goes back to why the acting is so good because like the, the journey they made was so much more apparent in their performances than in what we, the audience actually saw. Right. And I so appreciate where they, they can't figure out which road goes which way. Right. And Jack finally says, it doesn't matter. You take one and I'll take the other as long as we don't follow each other. And it's kind of, you've read Anansi Boys by Neil Gaiman. It's kind of the argument that two people so similar can't exist in the same space. It's the, this town ain't big enough for the two of us argument. Totally, totally, totally. And so the two men part and go different ways and you can almost hear a Mumford and Sons overlay <laughs> as they walk different ways down this really split path. I desperately wanted that Tom Waits song to come back and play over the end credits because right? like that would have that would have tied it up in a bow that would have been conve- like incredibly emotionally satisfying if nothing else. Oh man. But you know we both watched it and we both came out of it feeling like Jarmusch kept dangling that narrative thread. These, these, these are the same guy. They have the same lives. It's, it's blatantly apparent, especially in the opening scene, you know, they both crawl into bed. Their, their female companions show that they've only been pretending to be asleep. There's, there's all this stuff. And, you know, we came out of the movie being like, but it never went anywhere. But, but I think we just, established it did like did it in this conversation with you just now i'm sitting here looking back on it feeling like it like like that part of it at least becomes a, a bit of a narrative through line and and maybe it's because maybe it's because this movie didn't make me angry you know we've seen other movies that have like made me angry and and i didn't like it and like this one just made me bored and maybe I'm looking back on that with a little more kindness. I I honestly don't know at this point. No, I think there's an argument to be made that when we watch Andy, you and I watch movies and we talk about them and we analyze them and sometimes we imbue meaning into them. And sometimes that meaning is supposed to be there. And sometimes, sometimes it isn't look at my, my green room analysis, I wanted it to be this, I wanted it to be that, but at the end of the day, part of my accepting of the movie was, well, but it wasn't those things. If I accept the movie at face value, do I appreciate it as much as I would have if I hadn't come into it with those preconceived notions? Sure. So... Yes, it's a boring movie. Yes, we were coming off of a movie that we really, truly, utterly hated. <laughs> and sometimes it's more fun to talk about movies that you hate. I I agree. I I completely agree. You know, I'm I'm sitting here hoping the crypt gives us something we can really just joyously sink our teeth into. This one. This one was boring. Even even as I'm sitting here finding new things to like about it, it was totally boring. In just to say it one last time, in a way that a play wouldn't have been, even if you don't change anything. God, our poor listeners are probably so <laughs> bored. So let's give them something really exciting 
to listen to. Um, I loved Bob. We haven't talked about oh, Bob. He was wonderful. So, all right, listeners, listen up. So we have Zach and Jack, the Tom Waits character, and the somebody else. Help me. I'm John me. Lurie, who bizarrely enough is a musician. Like he did the music for the movie. Um, oh, no way. Yeah. So between Tom Waits, who is, you know, a, a cult musician, if ever there was one. And then sure. you had this guy who's like an actual film score writing musician. And then Roberto Benigni in one of his first American roles, a man who will go on to win best actor at the Oscars. Like, <laughs> like these were three very strong people to tie your movie to. Absolutely. Robert Benigni is beautiful. He's the spark of life for me in this movie. He, his line, so Bob, Roberto, comes to Zach as he is freshly kicked out of his apartment. He's making music on the street. And he says, it's a sad and beautiful world. And that line was a result of a misunderstanding. The script read, "It's a sad, that's sad and beautiful music. But Benini said, it's a sad and beautiful, beautiful word but because of his accent it sounded like they it sounded like he said it's a sad and beautiful world right and they were like oh no say that say that that goes so much more with the weight of the movie so that redefined the way that the character spoke and he'd never been to america prior to this film he's a wonderful actor i i agree he he He's was so the heart annoying. of the movie it, it it it's another one of those little hey this might actually happen things where bob and zach meet each other and then you know weeks later wind up in the same prison cell and not for a second do they ever like remember each other or recognize each other because I was just yeah. some schmuck who couldn't speak English who was bothering me while I was getting drunk. Yeah, and they never bring up, I think it's buzz off is the phrase right. that Zach uses with him. They never again bring up the phrase that Zach taught him the phrase buzz off. Right, and I, I was waiting for it and it never it never came for for yes. whether it's a good or a bad thing. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but it, it was realistic if nothing else. And there are these moments where the men all have their own soliloquies. At one point, they all part ways in the woods. And Benini has has this really long soliloquy and monologue about rabbits. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how his mother used to catch rabbits and then kill them and serve them to him. And how he's figured out the best way to kill rabbits and cook rabbits because of his mom. And those those moments were entirely improvised and based on Benini's own life experiences. And that's really cool. Like That's really cool. And that one was in English. Like he he had the other moment where he thought Jack and Zach swam off without him because he couldn't swim and he just starts, you know, muttering to himself in Italian. I and I was just sitting there being like, oh, I wish I understood you. I feel like I would get so much more I out know. of that. His performance was really wonderful. It really was. You know, uh, Roger Ebert, back when he was alive and, and doing film reviews for the news, reviewed this movie and gave it like three three out of five stars, I think. He he thought it was eh, kind of like we did. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, Fair enough. Interestingly, he hated Benini. He he was like, this guy is <gasps> really? not going to work in act. This guy is never going to be an American actor. This guy is never going to be anything. And like, it's 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 interesting that he could come away with that take when I mean, granted, he's watched a lot more movies than we do. And and there are things I could make <laughs> fun of Robert Ebert for. But being a film critic is not one of them. You know, we we liked mm-hmm. him. He didn't. Benini again won a Best Actor Oscar for Life is Beautiful in 1997. Um, oh, so wow. clearly the talent was always there. And I guess it's just, you know, the context of 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 
watching it whether you see that or not but no he was he was fantastic i think all the acting in this movie is fantastic there's one moment where tom waits's character is driving the car across town the car with the dead body in the back seat which is why he gets framed why he gets sent to prison and he's driving and he's muttering to right. himself and talking about hey this is Zedida for WQYZ radio and I'm talking about the weather and that was the most identifiable <laughs> moment for me in the whole movie because who doesn't mutter to themselves while they're driving in their own car <laughs> Just random stuff about like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this today. I hope that goes well. Da, 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 da. well it's, it, it's really funny you bring that up. I also very much identified with with, <laughs> with the other thing he was doing. He's he's sitting there continuing the fight with his girlfriend that he he did not have. Like, like just to go back to that, that opening scene real quick, like his, his girlfriend Lorette is screaming at him and he just sits there and you can tell he feels like a, a complete piece of shit. And the only thing that gets a rise out of him is when she tries to throw out his nice shoes. But other than that, he doesn't fight. He doesn't even raise his voice. Even when she's, you know, she's, she's giving 110% and, and I went back and forth over whether it was really good or really awful. Um, <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, like I, I could fall on either side. It, it reminded me of high school theater. So take that, take that for what you want. Sure. But like he doesn't fight her in the moment. It's only when he's like in the car, he he starts talking back to her and being like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna go back to Detroit, all right? Oh yeah, sure." And like <laughs> I've done that, <laughs> so I sure. related with that. Back to Detroit, and that's for damn sure. Shit. You can bet your ass I'm a good DJ. Yeah, it's escalator thoughts. It's you always think of the right thing to say when that person isn't standing in front right, of you. Right, right. Yeah, I, I loved that moment in the movie. I thought, this is really... The movie had really funny moments. There's a moment where all three men in the prison for no reason starts screaming ice cream you scream we all scream for ice cream over and over and over again and the other men in the jail start saying it too and they're all by the end of the scene they're all screaming ice cream you scream we all scream for ice cream what the (laughs) hell that's one of the few moments i i i think Jarmouche was trying to say something like like the prison segment it's it's the whole like middle 20 of the movie and it is boring it is so boring it is it's it's just the three guys in the room it's monotonous and like I think he was trying to say like county jail is boring at the end of the day especially back then when you know it was three guys in a cell and you know this isn't oz where they're trying to sodomize and kill each other it's just like hey here's what a real 80s prison was like it's boring and they're all so bored out of their skulls that just for a break in the monotony they all start screaming like maniacs but but you're right. There, there, there was funny stuff, and and the part that really made me laugh. It's also in the prison. It's it's right before the ice cream scene. You know, Bob gets in there, and he's been in there for a few hours or a day or whatever, and he asks Jack for a cigarette, and Jack gives it to him, and then he stands there for a minute. He puts it in his mouth, and then he goes over and he asks Jack for a light, and he's like, "I don't have any matches." <laughs> Like, I love that. That got a big old laugh out of me. That it, it's just really well done. It's it's better done than I just described it. Yeah, it's really comedic timing in that they gave him a cigarette, but they knew they couldn't right. light it. But they didn't tell yep. him that. Yeah. Um. The other thing that I really loved that Bob did in the prison was that he, with chalk or with some kind of writing implement, draws a window in the in the prison cell. And that was just a moment of purity and light and kind of 
Oh, Bob is a little bit more innocent than Zack and Jack. And I think the whole movie struggles with innocence and guilt and examining what those two terms can mean. I think you're right. And I think there's I think there's something to say to the notion that Zack and Jack were both framed for the crimes they were caught for. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a big thing for them. It's the first thing they tell each other in prison that they were each framed. And then Bob, who is the most lighthearted, happy-go-luckiest character in the prison, you know, they finally get him to spill it. And he's like, oh, yeah, I killed a guy with a a pool ball. And just kind of matter of fact. Yeah, which is an actual crime. And then he says, but, but like you too, I am, I am an innocent man. He says, I'm innocent too. I, I also was set up. No, buddy, you weren't. You actually legit killed a guy in cold blood with a pool ball. But he's the most lighthearted of the three of them. Yeah. So I I think you're on to something there. What did you think of the fact that we never actually get a prison escape scene? I was so mad, dude. I was so let down because if you're going to be a prison escape movie, you show the prison escape. Cut two, we just see them running through the sewer. Yeah, I can't think of another movie that does something like that. It, It goes from Bob saying, I know how to get out of the yard. And like they they go through the whole thing of like he he almost isn't let out with them and and you're you're built up to be like okay we're gonna we're gonna watch all their all their prison escape trials and hijinks but it's like no okay you can go with the other two cut to the three of them running through the sewer yeah it was it was something I mean I I don't know maybe maybe they they didn't have it in the budget to to do that maybe they they couldn't get a prison yard I I have no idea with Jarmouche maybe he was just like no that part's not important <laughs> we need to get to the the journey of them in the swamp <laughs> why not <sighs> oh Andy I don't have a whole lot to say about this movie well we've talked for longer than I thought we we we're going to i was i was ready to queue up like a discussion of jim jarmusch the man and just just a pad for time if we needed it uh for kicks and uh, giggles listeners if you want go ahead and look him up he looks like james spader but his hair like like james spader touched a cattle rod and it turned his hair white and made it shoot out like straight out that's jim jarmusch (laughs) But no, I, I think I think we've given this movie fair love service. It's it's good. I did did you like it? Because I I think not. No, I didn't. And that's fair. It wasn't. I didn't. I didn't yeah. hate it, but I didn't like it. I, you know? I absolutely agree because that's kind of my thing too. Like like I I'm interested to get to Ghost Dog or Dead Man or Only Lovers Left Alive. Something that. I, I strongly think I'll like more than this, but like I didn't like it. I'll adapt it into a into a staged version, absolutely, but I liked parts of it as a whole. I didn't like it. It was boring. And listeners, we're so sorry, but this is we're a film co- podcast. Sometimes this is going to happen. Totally. Sometimes we're going to review a movie that is just eh? And it's a different kind of landmine and and like to, to lead us into is this cult like even if we had heavily researched even if we been like okay man we can't have another blood for dracula we can't we gotta like really figure out the movie we're about to dive into like like the reviews are all positive the, the reviews praise it. it it's it's considered a cult 80s masterpiece so like here's a real good example of the subjectivity of opinion yes Yes, and I think, you know, a lot of people could argue this is cult. It did not make a lot of money. It is not heavily reviewed. It did not win. Did it win anything? <laughs> you said it won Best it, it Foreign won Movie. It won Best Foreign Movie in Norway, which that's great. <laughs> I love that. Uh, wow, Norwegians are bored. <laughs> if if you're Norwegian, we love you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. <laughs> We'll knit you a sweater if you write us a handwritten letter and request for one, because it's probably cold where yeah. you live. If you're Norwegian, I didn't but, know you had your own version of the Oscars, and 
I'd love to move to your country and have free college. <laughs> you already went to college. Yeah, but this would be free college in Norway. <laughs> uh, anyway, this was just an interest. It was a different movie yeah. to look at. I, I it's I don't even know if it's quotable because I couldn't come up with a favorite quote. <laughs> right, and and I almost forgot until you reminded me. There is one. I, I do have a quote, but perhaps appropriately for this movie, it's not a spoken line. Like, so in oh? Zach's apartment, he's he's just got stuff scribbled on the walls. It's it's the same thing in the prison. The dude just writes on the walls and draws stuff. And the first shot you see of Zach when he like hangs his head around the the frame of the door, written right there by his face, is the quote. It's not the fall that scares me. It's the sudden stop. And I love that. That's, I can get behind that. That had nothing to do with the movie. It's kind of the whole, sorry, no, I interrupted you, but it's the whole premise of the movie. Maybe it is. I, I, I would have to have that argued at me, but. It's the whole, like, I think that's a really accurate representation for the movie because it's not the being declared guilty it's the end stop in prison sure it's it's not the end of the road it's the beginning where you have to make a choice on which way to go well there you go then the uh the the thesis of film and it's it's (laughs) scribbled in the it's scribbled on the wall dead center of camera in in the first opening minutes or maybe this is my tendency to project upon things and make it be a story. God damn it. No, no. Now you, you get this. It's canon. I'm I'm telling Jarmouche that's what he meant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. When you meet him for cocktails next week, because clearly you guys are friends. Well, clearly. I mean, don't tell him I'm only using him because he looks like Spader, but, you know. Oh, and Andy, do we need to have an intervention for you? Not till we see Secretary. Oh, oh, that's going to be a happy day. <laughs> then we'll need the intervention. Um, so this one best foreign film in Norway, <laughs> but what Oscar would you give it, Stephanie? I would give this movie the Oscar for worst table manners to Tom Waits. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or, I'm sorry, to Zach, Zach's character, because there is a moment where at the end of the movie they're eating with Bob and his new girlfriend, Nicoletta, and Nicoletta has has made them a beautiful meal, and Tom Waits' character sticks his entire hand into the spaghetti and serves it up to himself that way. (sighs) Well... Importantly, very, very crucially, his hand, which has been moving through New Orleans swamp for the better part of three days and has touched trees and the dirt and the the dirty paddle of the boat and probably the water like, and the dead rabbit and the dead rabbit. He which he I mean, he also ate that with his hands, but whatever it's it makes more sense when it's fire roasted rabbit and you don't have utensils at nicoletta's you had utensils zach god zach (laughs) this is why we can't have nice things it's because tom waits just it makes sense for him to be dirty (laughs) but his little sweater at the end when he's wearing a little cardigan so cute oh absolutely no i i agree i i immediately caught that as as zach just reaches across the table and sticks his dirty hand in wet pasta and went oh no (laughs) i mean i get it you're starving true 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 true. what would you give this movie an oscar for um so to keep it in that scene the end of the movie i would give down by law the oscar for most convenient coincidence you know we talked about it a little bit earlier but like it is it is the most serendipitous happenstance that not only Mm. do they find shelter that not only has only a single woman in it like if there's a if there's a man in there 
they're getting kicked out at the very least, if not like shot. So not only is there a restaurant, not only does it have a single woman as its inhabitant, not only is she Italian, not only does she fabulously get off with Bob instantly, not only is she okay with three blatant ex-cons still wearing their prison uniform coming in and sharing her table, but her uncle died and she has clothes for all of them, so they have a disguise. I forgot to tell you a very important thing that oh? I had, and I didn't even write it in my notes. Did you at all get the feeling that her uncle was the guy that Bob killed? Oh, snap. I uh, I did not. I, um, huh. There was one moment where she said something where she said something to the effect of, like, my uncle who owns a bar was out gambling and the next day I heard from him and he died. And there was some some line that made me think, I wonder if that's the if her uncle is the guy that Bob killed. But I don't know. I I took it as New Orleans and True. It's not like there's any shortage of bars where people can gamble in New Orleans. Right. But man, if that's if that was meant to be there, that is such a, a tasty, spicy detail that could very easily sail over people's heads. So oh, it's like that makes Bob's happy ending so much more twisted and dark. And I think I love that. I think I accept that. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> you know what else we love and accept, Andy? Six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Oh, hells yeah! Would you like to go first? I think yeah, you so should. I'm, I'm going to go first because I, I thought I was a very clever boy. And well, you are a very clever boy. But <laughs> well, clever thank you. I... Right. Um, so hilariously, and I, I guffawed and chuckled to myself as I realized this, you know, last time you connected Joe D'Alessandro to Diane Lane to Kevin Bacon and uh-huh. Joe D'Alessandro was in the Cotton Club. <gasps> Tom Waits was also in the Cotton Club. And so oh, you're, a very, <laughs> you're a very clever boy. I, I piggybacked and stole your 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 six degrees. So Tom Waits to Diane Lane, who was in My Dog Skip with Kevin Bacon. And I, I was so happy. And then in our note sheets, I saw four, like, like six letters, which which is not good. T.W. in Q.L. with K.V., which is to say that Tom Waits was in Queen's Logic with Kevin Bacon. Okay. See, I was sitting here trying to remember the episode of Quantum Leap that, that had the <laughs> two of them. <laughs> no, Queen's Logic is a 1991 film. Tom Waits plays a very fancy man in it, but in Queen's, a group of friends prepares for a bachelor party for their childhood friends. And then hilarity ensues. And Tom awesome. Waits is in it. Yeah. And oh, so you did it in one. Good on you. I'll I'll take it. It's it's interesting. I I only kind of realized this very gradually. Tom Waits has a pretty decent career as an actor. Uh he's yes. He's been in a very fair amount of stuff. He's in more than a couple of movies on our list. I'm pretty um, excited about that. Yeah. Right. It's it's a good it's a good landmine. The t- the Tom Waits landmine. Yeah, is the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus on our list? You bet it is. Excellent. Fantastic. Listeners, I don't want to spoil our future episode, but Tom Waits plays my favorite incarnation of the devil. Like, period. I think that's my favorite role he's ever been in. Absolutely. Yeah, no, the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus is on our list. Um, he's also in Wrist Cutters, a love story. He's, he's in Wrist Cutters? He is. 
Um, no way. And I haven't actually watched Wrist Cutters, but I've seen the trailer and he's in the trailer. So. Oh, it's a good film. You'd like it. It's on our list. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So um, we've got some good landmines and we've got some bad landmines. And I'm hoping we hit another Tom Waits landmine. Without further ado, our next film out of 313 possibilities is number 263. <laughs> and this is a movie I very much like. I, I don't know if you will. Number 263 coming to us from Danny Boyle 28 Days Later. Isn't that a zombie movie? That is a awesome zombie movie okay cool 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 one that you did not highlight in red i will point out oh okay all right i'll watch it i think i i think i'm i'm okay with it because zombies don't bother me but you know maybe i'll watch it during the daytime it's fine probably watch it during the daytime there's there's a couple of uh oh <laughs> moments <laughs> if i made and it through green room can i make it through this i think so i mean i'll go ahead and tell you there are like there are a couple of zombie face fills the camera jump scares oh okay okay but just like one or two and that's about as bad as it gets okay all right i can do those all right yeah well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast and at Instagram at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time when we wake up from a coma and try to figure out what happened to the rest of London as we watch 2002's 28 Days Later. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell. And before we get to uh, Winifred Sanders, um, just to give you all a glimpse into how early we've been working on this and recording this, our <laughs> first episode goes live tomorrow. <laughs> so, tomorrow. So, so, Andy, cheers. Cheers. Cheers to us. Cheers. And uh, I hope you all have been enjoying them up until this point. Me too.